It's really my, my great pleasure to introduce our, our next speaker. ...in the Jennings Randolph Fellowship Program at the United States Institute of Peace. Uh, prior to joining the USIP, she was Assistant Director of the Teach Asia Program in the Asia Society's Education Division. Uh, there she was responsible for curriculum creation and professional development. While at the Asia Society, she oversaw the production of an NEH-funded curriculum guide on Islam, uh, Islam in Southeast Asia, and she planned and led a month-long Fulbright Hayes Educators Tour to China. From 2000 to 2005, Dr. Cole was a Senior Program Officer in Studies and Education at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. While there, she developed an international research program called History and the Politics of Reconciliation, which studied how societies reckon with difficult pasts. Her publications include Common History, Contentious Memories, and Teaching the Violent Past, History, Education, and Reconciliation. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Cole. Well, thank you so much, Darlene. Um, thank you to Villanova for the chance to speak here, and also thank all of you for coming today. Um, I, I wanted to say that I, um, this is a, I've been working on the role of history in accounting for the past and transitional justice, but this particular talk is going to be called Against Forgiveness, and I, um, I rather hope to make people sort of mad. And I think if Dr. Lufkin were here, I could probably be pretty sure I could really make him mad. Um, I have wanted to, I've found that actually, uh, in fact, talk about forgiveness in not all, but many contexts, in fact, has been making me quite angry. I'm actually standing up here um, in, 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 you know, something of a rage. So I thought I would try to present uh, my argument, and I will, I think I will certainly excite comments from people, and that would actually be helpful because um, I would like to make my argument uh, more, more watertight, and I think um, precisely because, as we heard other people say today, and I think Penny said this as well, in fact, forgiveness is something very slippery and hard to pin down. So you can get into all kinds of quagmires when you're trying to talk about it. I think uh, defense of it or critique of it. So I wanted to start by saying, by first of all, giving an overall definition of, of the context I'm speaking in. I, I am interested in what happens after massive crimes against humanity, after gross and systematic human rights violations, against very large harms, which, are, which involve on both sides and the perpetrator and victim side many, many people and institutions. So these are our complex events, and, um, and they do, they're not uh, an issue, of, it's not an issue of individual to individual um, um, interaction to begin with. And then they're, they're not small things or things that can be, um, let's say, lightly dismissed. And I'll say too that I'm interested in the practical implications of this because I'm interested in the possibilities of peace building after conflict and in uh, building new relations, sometimes it's rebuilding relations, often it really has to be new relations with former enemies. So I, I am interested in what can be, um, 
apply here today that obviously extend far beyond the Christian or Catholic world. So that, that's another issue is that I think a number of the other speakers here were speaking from a Catholic tradition, which I, I actually think is, is obviously very valuable and each tradition has a lot to teach um, other traditions around the world. But I'm, I'm looking for um, the context around the world. I wanted to start with um, something uh, rather more personal, and that's when I uh, was first invited to this event, and I uh, saw immediately that the um, keynote speech was to be given by um, Mr. Bontrager, and they mentioned the nickel mines incident. And I was uh, immediately remembered that there had been um, a mass shooting in the Amish community. I selfishly got very worried because actually, um, my, my family, after years of living just in suburban Cleveland, had, had moved fairly recently to an Amish community that's um, fairly far east of Cleveland. And I was, of course, very worried that this had taken place in, in our community. And, and because we've been lucky enough to get to know actually some of our Amish neighbors, particularly after you know, hearing that the Amish are people apart and it's hard to get to know them, I felt quite interested in and, and very um, concerned about what happened in the community in Pennsylvania, and I have been struck by the discourse of forgiveness. And I know it's widespread, and my mother had just, without even knowing about this, this event or this um, invitation, had mentioned to me when I was home that there had been an incident in which an Amish van driver, because Amish do get um, a dispensation from their bishops to drive vans and do other things if it, if it helps the whole community. And many people ride actually around by vans and a, an Amish van driver had just struck and killed a boy um, and his horse in, a, in, a, in a, a buggy in the community, so he struck him with enough force that they were both killed. So our ethic is, is complete forgiveness, and we've just forgiven him. You know, we don't want to know anything else. We've forgiven the van driver. And, you know, my, my, my parents have actually developed very deep um, admiration for the ethics and community values of the Amish. My mother is quite upset about that, possibly the, um, the emotions that somewhat mirrored mine. So I was thinking about, of course, I, I you know, can't predict what Mr. Bontrager is going to say, and it's been very, very interesting, I think. But I was making some comparisons with what I, I guess is going to be um, a discussion of the very deep ethic of forgiveness of the Amish, and making some, uh, trying to make some comparisons in my mind with some of the um, many of the contexts that I'm thinking of and why they're so different. Because here is actually an example of group forgiveness, which I'm going to claim you will virtually never find, um, as well as some things that go with that. You actually will never virtually find empirical evidence of this. In the Nickel Mine um, incident, there was a lone perpetrator. Um, he was not backed by the state, by groups or institutions. The perpetrator's dead, so uh, he's unable to repeat the acts of violence, and he's also dead, so he can't be defiant and refuse to apologize or try to justify his acts. The victimized community remains intact, and it's also a community in which there's an unusually high degree of cohesiveness and spiritual or ethical agreement within the community, and there was immediate and thorough support from the larger community and from the official institutions of the state. And um, I, I, well, as, I, as I will say, as I think as you, as you can imagine, these are very, very, very different conditions from what you would have after state-sponsored violence and violence in the usual complex situations where you have many, many people involved at different levels and many 
institutions and, um, and, and many of the perpetrators in the immediate aftermath are, are still alive and at large, and many of them, in fact, the vast majority, have not um, rejected their deeds or their ideology. And the victim, many of the communities are completely shattered and you have institutions which have collaborated in the acts of violence at every level. I mean, if you are in Chile during the Dirty War, or Nazi Germany, or South Africa under apartheid, almost every institution was involved in supporting the perpetrators, whether it was the police, whether it was the medical community, whether it was the publishing business. Um, you would actually scarcely find a sector which was not implicated in the violence. So um, I thought I would move on and maybe, um, you know, I, I think I, I won't apologize for this ahead of time, just in the um, interest in maybe stirring people up, although I, I'm not the first person today. I'll follow on some of the examples that um, Penny gave to everybody. I, I would like to upset everyone and give an example of what I, I try to think of when I think of what should be, um, what should be, what, what should we be thinking of that needs repair? And um, I was just at a, um, a presentation in Washington on Columbia, and on the first report of the, there's a, a, a commission, a very interesting commission there, on, I think it's actually called History, Historical Memory and Justice. It's not actually a truth commission, it's a body of experts, it's making a report. And they chose for their first report, they, they've chosen a set of emblematic events that have happened in Colombia, which I don't have to tell you and how it's going to be submitted, um, is something called the Trujillo Massacre, which was a series of massacres in the city of Trujillo. And, you know, I, I do have to just say that there is, um, these, were, these were massacres in which, with forensic evidence that they now um, exhuming bodies, they found that, I mean, not only were there massacres, but the particular people who were carrying out killings in the city um, chose to do so by um, dismembering people before they died with chainsaws. I mean, there is, um, you can find similar types of violence um, throughout all the different kinds of um, contexts that I'm referring to. So not only are many of the victims dead, but they died in the most terrible ways possible. And the survivors, um, their family members, um, you know, now at this point, know about how these things took place. And I, I would like to quote at this point from a, a, uh, a writer who followed a journalist from South Africa who wrote on the Truth Commission hearings there in a very wonderful uh, memoir called Country of My Skull. She's actually an Afrikaans a poet in Afrikaans has asked the hardest of all the questions, how is it possible the person I loved so much lit no spark of humanity in you? So it's one of the questions I just like to keep in mind as I talk. I wanted to say I'm interested particularly in joining this conversation um, because I, um, I want to actually make a strong case against forgiveness because I do believe in verifiable cases of something I can have to call reconciliation, despite the difficulty in the term, and it's so difficult to find a better term, which is the possibility of building new relations after violence. I'm actually not standing in front of you um, uh, tearing apart forgiveness because I'm with enough passage of time to be able to go back and assess this. 
But I think that robust reconciliation can be fatally undermined by simple answers, um, sentimental definitions, and their cheap and easy methods, untested claims, notions that grow out of very specific religious and, and cultural traditions, and lack of real knowledge about and grappling with the conditions of these uses are difficult to define, and the number of writers have pointed out that no one really seems to agree on what forgiveness is. Um, it's more vague than other gestures like apology. It's much harder to define. And I find that the definitions are often broadened to the point where they become very vague and encompass many psychological processes that might better be called broad reconciliation. And they often focus on the individual, as we heard this morning, letting go, finding peace, uh, seeing humanity in the other, reestablishing moral relations with the perpetrator, and also self-improvement. Um, and also often a concern, I think, with revenge. I think that underlies many of the definitions of forgiveness, which is actually um, understandable. That um, the concern with, with a desire for revenge is so strong that many people have seen forgiveness as the countervailing emotion or countervailing process, which I would actually argue is not true. I think I would like to stay close to the usual day-to-day -day understanding that most people who are not philosophers have. And it doesn't imply just coexistence, live and let live, um, but rather, usually as you would understand forgiveness, it's a change in attitude, I think, towards a wrongdoer, such that somehow the pre-harm relationship is established or a new relationship is established in which the harm is no longer so terribly relevant. And um, also with time, there's a sense of reducing um, the sense of the damaged past. Um, I think there's a sense in which the past looks less terrible when you say this. When, someone's, when you say, I forgive you for something, I think it does mean that, in some sense, the harm involved is felt to be sort of bearable or, or manageable or tolerable. Um, I, I will say, because um, her presence haunts all these discussions, that um, Hannah Arendt's observation that forgiveness is the only force that allows a deed to be undone um, focuses on the deed and not on the perpetrator. And this fits a relationship between individuals and more especially one in which harms do not rise to the level of torture and death or murder, but are quite different uh, when, and, and it's, we're talking about something quite different when the scale of harm is much greater. So to go on to a few important questions and conditions for talking about forgiveness. First thing I, I wanted to ask was who can forgive? And if the salient condition is many dead, then the First line victims, if you want to say that, are actually the dead. And who can forgive on behalf of the dead? It's not clear that anyone can do that in, in any tradition. And even when the victims are still alive, um, one of them could choose to forgive. But who could forgive on behalf of many victims, many of whom do not want to make this choice? And secondly, who is to be forgiven? And again, if the salient feature, the salient condition, is this um, widespread, high degree of, of great damage, then these harms have many authors and many levels, and some are institutional. 
So are we talking about cricket in the state or institutions or citizens who were bystanders and beneficiaries or perhaps tacitly condoned the injustice? Is it those who made the policy? Is it those who gave the orders? Is it those who carried them out? It's possible, I think, to imagine one low-level perpetrator, perhaps with mitigating circumstances such as youth or fear, facing a victim or surviving family member of dead victims and asking for and receiving individual forgiveness. But what about when you get to other levels? And at this point, I just wanted to um, repeat the anecdote, which many of you may know, by, that was told by Rabbi Albert Friedlander, who is a German um, survivor of the Holocaust, who has done a lot of writing on this topic, and had lived in, in England for many years before he agreed to go back and speak in Germany. And he has this famous story that he gave a speech in Germany, and he was approached, um, this was already fairly late after the war, I think as late as the 80s, and he was approached by um, two different German citizens, and one was a young German girl who was in tears and said, oh, can you forgive me for what the Germans did? And the rabbi said, well, um, there, there's absolutely nothing to forgive. You were born after, well after the war, you're not guilty of these crimes, so you don't even need to ask me for forgiveness. And the other was um, an older man who said, oh, rabbi, I was a prison camp guard. Can you forgive me for what I did? And he said, well, we're not um, allowed to forgive on behalf of, of the dead on behalf of victims, so no, actually, I, I actually can't, I can't forgive you, you need to ask your God for forgiveness. Um, and I would say that if, if the degree of atrocity makes it difficult to forgive, then the passage of time also introduces the problem of a lapse in logic. If the perpetrator generation is mostly dead, what do their descendants need to be forgiven for? of the harms that were caused. And in some societies, you could actually claim that the um, future generations could be beneficiaries, which does complicate the picture. And then how, how does forgiveness take place? Under what conditions? And I have to say that I, I find unconditional forgiveness uh, morally unsatisfactory. And Charles Griswold, who's been cited several times today, is one of a number of very interesting writers on forgiveness points out that um, even at the individual level, which is where he sees forgiveness as operative, he says forgiveness is a, is a concept that comes with conditions attached. It is governed by norms. Um, unconditional forgiveness with no gesture sought from the other side, the side that um, caused the wrong, it may be appealing to some, but I think it's unlikely beyond specifically Christian circles where, where it's it is actually a particular virtue. And I did want to say also, I think it may be understood even in the scriptural context. It was interesting to me, and I, I expect I'll hear back from the people here who are theologians. Griswold actually points out, I had always assumed that complete unconditional forgiveness was meant to be an imitatio Christi, an imitation of Christ. But Griswold points out that Christ on the cross doesn't say, um, I forgive you unconditionally. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He asks God to forgive, the Father forgive them. So even the scriptural um, approach to forgiveness, I think, may be more complicated than, than is, at least is indicated by the idea of unconditionality. So if forgiveness, in any case, is to be conditional, um, should be based on gestures from the perpetrator, which I think is what many writers who 
appeal to me, um, certainly C. And then you have to ask what conditions need to be fulfilled. And looking at what has been, um, what seems to have been the conditions in many uh, settings of great harm, great violence around the world, and often what victims ask for, the conditions would be acknowledgement of harm, apology, remorse, evidence of intention not to repeat the act, repair, and they seem to me the conditions for robust re reconciliation, for really building um, truly lasting peace between former enemies, such that at least people can work together collaboratively on, on common problems, even if, um, even if you wouldn't necessarily raise a question of, raise the bar to a level where you would talk about something like love. In politics, I think it's Griswold also says, the moral bar is lower than it is between individuals. And at this point, I have to point out the rather um, uncomfortable fact that there are almost no recorded instances of any of the above, those things I just mentioned, directly from perpetrators themselves, especially higher up ones. Um, as much as everyone, I think, thinks that the Truth Commission in South Africa resulted in a lot of high-level perpetrators coming forward and confessing and um, asking for forgiveness and having some kind of and direct reconciliation with their victims. This was actually very rare. I think there's really, I think there's only one, and I think that was um, Eugene de Kock. There were people who were defiant. There were um, some very high up people in the South African government who were key um, members of the old apartheid government who flatly refused to come and testify. Um, there were some very half-hearted apologies, but there were actually very few statements directly from the perpetrators. And if you look around the world, you'd be hard-pressed, I think, to come up with very many of them. Now, where I think there is some evidence from work that's really only just being done now for confession and requests for forgiveness, and possibly forgiveness being offered too, between individuals and small communities, is from lower level fighters at the community level who are being reintegrated into the community. I know some work that's been done on that in Peru. I think Sierra Leone was mentioned. There's been a lot of studies in Sierra Leone. But my impression from everything I've seen empirically is that this is from lower level people who could well claim to have been the foot soldiers um, and not the people who set such policy, not the people who may have um, actually used threats, used lies. To, to mobilize people. And finally, the question is for forgiveness. Well, how do we know? What does forgiveness look like at a group level? At the individual level, I assume it would be discursive. People would say, I forgive. But how can forgiveness be a programmatic, a policy, or an intentional tool of peace building? And I will tell you, coming from this field, that um, it is discussed, and I think it's worrisome, by many people who say, well, we, we should um, use programmatic methods to encourage forgiveness in places that are very distant from the people who are often saying this. They say this about Iraq. They say this about somewhere like East Timor. And again, what I get back to is that I, I think this is extremely problematic. I think this is a particularly problematic tool. Um, and I, I will say that I um, only know of one group statement of forgiveness towards another group. 
Um, the books I looked at actually said there were none. I do happen to know of one because it's been written about and I'm quite interested in it. That was in 1966. It was from um, a part of the Catholic Church specifically, from a very Catholic country. It was from the Polish Catholic bishops to the German people. In 1966, they wrote, um, I think it was an encyclical, maybe, that said, we forgive and ask to be forgiven. And it was a specific reference to World War II. And um, I still think it's actually um, quite historical, um, really very, very inspirational, probably not repeatable. Um, and it was in defiance of the communist government. But it's really the only one that I've ever read about. So even if other expressions of forgiveness, we as a group forgive you, even if these were to be made, how would you actually measure their reception in the other groups? It'd be very difficult. And the question of how you measure the reception of any gesture, I will admit, is very difficult. If there's been official apologies, it's very difficult to measure the reception. This is a whole field of endeavor. But I think the reception of an expression of forgiveness would be very, very, very difficult to evaluate and assess. So a few, some evidence from some different countries um, especially including some where forgiveness was widely cited in the media. Since South Africa is the one that comes up again and again, um, notice that despite um, Bishop Tutu's um, reliance on forgiveness, um, which got a lot of media attention, it was not called the Forgiveness Commission, it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's never actually been a Forgiveness Commission anywhere. Um, there's been a very good study on this by Audrey Chapman, who's a very interesting scholar who I would recommend um, on this. And she's looked in detail. She's actually, um, I think, an ordained minister as well as a specialist in medical um, and bioethics. She did a long study of the Truth Commission, um, of both of the transcripts and then um, conducted interviews with victims uh, who had testified at the Truth Commission. Very interestingly, they very rarely discussed forgiveness. They very rarely mentioned it. And a percentage, of a small percentage who actually mentioned it, they said they would not forgive. They brought it up to say they were not interested in forgiving. Um, but what they did talk about and want, sometimes as a precondition for forgiveness, and sometimes not, um, I think I'll actually read her list, because it's quite interesting. They wanted the truth about human rights violations and the perpetrators. They wanted to tell their story in public and gain public acknowledgement. They wanted to clear their own name or the victim's name in the community and thereby restore honor and dignity. They wanted to obtain justice, um, which is different percentages of the people who spoke of each of these things. They wanted to encounter <coughs> perpetrators which I take to be related to truth, because you do hear people around the world say, well, what I want, and this is particularly in cases where people knew each other, where the violence was within small communities. So it would be most typically in the kind of violence you hear about having taken place in Bosnia, in Cambodia, people say, I want to look, I want the um, perpetrators to have to look us in the face and answer, why did you do this? Especially because you were our neighbor and, and we knew you and you knew us. Um, an additional group wanted reparations, which was in South Africa. Um, and then a group said they wanted to discover why the violations had occurred. 
And I think, again, that's probably truth and um, possibly encountering the perpetrators. Um, a, a few other a few other references. I looked. I was looking at this is a part of a whole set actually of recent studies of forgiveness um, that came out in the Journal of Peace and Conflict, which is actually looks at these topics a lot. It's a whole cluster, and the one that looked at Australia was also based on interviews with Aboriginal people, and um, they they found virtually no one they talked to actually asked for forgiveness. They asked for apology. Apology was what came out a lot. And as you probably know, there have been apologies recently issued in both Australia and in Canada to Aboriginal people. Um, a case I, I'd like to mention also is, is the Holocaust in Europe. And I have to say, when you look at most of the literature I know, forgiveness is virtually never a topic for discussion. And I do think that one of the undoubtedly most inspirational events of the late 20th century for many of us, and that's why I say I do believe in long-term reconciliation, is actually the miraculous way in which Germany's relations with its neighbors and with the Jewish people at large and Israel have developed. And um, I, I mean, I think even not trying to be too sort of romantic or um, um, using very um, heightened language. I do think it is an amazing thing, and that includes relations with France, relations with Poland, relations with the Czech Republic, and then, um, as I said, with, with the Jewish people, with the state of Israel. Um, there's been, I think there's, you will still find outliers, I, I think they're outliers, who insist they still hate and will always hate the Germans, and the Germans are always going to be warlike and untrustworthy and so on. But if you look at the use of institutions to really actually build and not just talk about cooperation and reconciliation, and the range of gestures, which do have a checkered history, they weren't all made spontaneously. They were often made with some self enlightened interest, and they were received with self-enlightened interest, such gestures as reparations um, to people in Israel, which was highly controversial and unpopular to Jews in Israel when it was first made. It was accepted by the Israeli government, often for some, um, you know, fairly utilitarian reasons, actually utilitarian reasons, not only ethical reasons, but nonetheless, over the years, the cumulative effect of the many very creative things that were done, including memorialization and creation of, um, for example, the, um, the service that young people do, can do in Germany. It's a kind of alternative service where they go and work in countries that were uh, that suffered because of Germany during World War II. I mean, very creative things. I think there's no doubt that uh, this is a model for the rest of the world, sometimes actually unfairly. That includes also by way of widespread initiatives in education very thorough um, initiatives in education and history education. And um, sometimes you, you now find the complaint that other countries don't want to be held up to the standards of Germany for this or that reason. But you never see forgiveness again show up in this discourse. And I think that's even most Jews today who have relations with Germans or have um, 
and it's um, a fairly positive view of Germans or were survivors of the Holocaust. If you ask them if they forgave the original perpetrators, I think the question would not make a lot of sense to them. And if you ask them if they forgive Germans today, again, the answer would be, if you stopped and thought about it, well, there's nothing to forgive. There is some other kind of moral debt between these people. There's some kind of moral relationship that relies on keeping somehow mindful about the past and thinking what you can build that's positive out of it. And I, I, I recently said at another conference, I was at, I do believe, at least when you get scholars of the Holocaust together who now come from countries all over Europe, not all over the world, the question isn't so much how the Germans have been so evil, it's rather how, how do genocides take place? And how can we use this to try to understand other genocides and where they come from? And I think already that's a very positive development from accusation to mutual understanding. But again, I think the, among these very positive things, forgiveness itself is, is not really a part of the discourse. And finally, um, just one more example, Cambodia, before the current trials um, uh, started taking place or even thought to, to be possible, as you may know, the last surviving um, um, perpetrators of the kind of auto-genocide have, have actually gone on trial, something which most people thought would never happen, and it's, it's not a perfect process, and it's a mixed court of foreigners and Cambodians. For a long, long time, it was said, well, Cambodians are really forgiving people because they're Buddhists, and Buddhism teaches forgiveness. And actually, um, some informal surveys have shown that um, sort of ordinary people, not the people who are connected to the international world of trials and truth commissions and transitional justice, they wanted perpetrators to go on trial. The one concern they had was they didn't want it to be their own courts because they didn't think their own courts could be trusted um, to dispense um, fair, fair justice at an international standard. And now that the courts, the court, the trials are going on, um, many, many, many victims are coming forward and want to tell their stories and want to see those, even if it is those last few, the others having died. In the meantime, they do want to see them on trial. So they're not asking for revenge, but neither are they saying, are they particularly talking about forgiveness instead of processes of justice? So that's been a very interesting development, has been the activity of the um, victims around the country and their interest in taking part in the trials. And I should say that um, while the discourse about forgiveness was going on, I think more among foreigners than among Cambodians, it's been related a number of times, and it's hard to believe that one of the current problems in Cambodia is the government never allowed this to be taught in the schools. And in fact, when you talk about the dangers of forgiveness, um, the government of Cambodia, which is complicit in the Khmer Rouge atrocities, famously the leader of Sen once said, we will build a deep hole and bury the past, which is a bit suspicious because it's quite in his own interest. And so this was not really discussed publicly, except in so much as the government controlled all the discussion about what went on. It was not taught in schools. And there are reliable reports that the younger generation does not believe this took place. And they're quite um, angry and contemptuous. And when they hear their family members talk about it, they say, this is just a story. It didn't take place. How could it possibly have taken place? Which is very hard to believe. And it's very hard to believe also that it could be a positive thing. 
that somehow this doesn't matter deeply enough to Cambodia that it needs to be understood and somehow accounted for. I really, I, I think we could get into a discussion of this later, of where we find the dangers. There are those who don't believe it's, it's dangerous for these things to be forgotten. But I would contend very strongly it would be extremely dangerous. Um, if nothing else, then for the relation between these generations, if a whole generation of young people believe that their parents' generation has spun some kind of complex lie. I mean, this is the kind of danger of choosing amnesia um, over, over some kind of reckoning or forgiveness that does not actually ask for some kind of reckoning. So with that, let me move on to what I think the dangers of forgiveness are. First, what is the use by political leaders? And that's been pointed out by Michael Ignatieff and Brandon Hammer. If any of you are interested in, in reading more about this, um, they're both wonderful um, scholars. And Michael Ignatieff is a writer and journalist, is now a politician in Canada, and Brandon's a writer on, writers on all these topics. First danger is that political leaders who stand to gain by saying, okay, let's, let's all have an ethic of forgiveness and no trials and um, no other demands for apology or accountability that can serve the purposes of leaders. Also, I see the danger of the deliberate use of a call for forgiveness by outsiders as well as insiders of power because more than anything else, it's a demand placed on the victims. And I have to say, going back to what we heard with the opening speech today, the forgiveness movement in popular therapy and personal growth, I did some research on this. There are um, um, sites, internet sites called forgiveness.com. I think that actually might be Dr. Lufkin's. And uh, that's when I really started getting very angry about this topic. And my question was, well, why isn't there a moving movement asking for apology or penance? I mean, Say we're all sinners. Say everyone should be apologizing, thinking of things they've done wrong in their life and apologizing. How strange. Why is there a movement that actually leans on the victims? And I, I couldn't really um, explain this except in some really dark terms. It finally seemed to me that because there's no record of especially high-level perpetrators ever apologizing, it seemed to me that some people out there think victims are an easier target group because they're more vulnerable and that maybe they'll be more interested in these um, exhortations and books and internet resources and talks. I don't know. But I think the idea of asking something from victims, especially when we think of what many of these people have survived, is actually really quite amazing. And just, just by way of thinking about the way it sounds linguistically, Australia has an interesting tradition called um, Sorry Day. Which you know, borders on it's pretty sentimental, but people take it very seriously. It's quite interesting sign and a quite a I think looks like quite a massive movement in Australia to think about the founding of the country and the relation with the indigenous people and it's all kinds of programs around it. I've just seen some new um, curricula um, for the schools. Interestingly, the article that I read on um, what Aboriginal people in Australia are asking for, and they're not talking forgiveness. They talk about apology, and a number of them mentioned we really like to have our art history taught in schools so people know and appreciate and recognize our history as part of the history of this country. But could you imagine promoting a forgive day? Which would be asking the, you know, if it's not too conditional, it would be really putting the onus on the Aboriginal people with all the many um, very harsh parts of history that they, they have had to put up with. 
And I will add that again, Charles Griswold, who um, said this all better than me, he sees the urging of forgiveness as potentially, a, this is a quote, a socially mandated process for peacemaking, a kind of social or political procedure in which the individual is released from the threat of punishment in return for abjuring further violence, which may achieve restoration of civic collaboration, but not necessarily a change of sentiment. Or even worse, he says, he sees it possibly as a process akin to some kind of enforced conversion or religious movement. Now, I will add, by way of being fair, that calling for apology could also have the same effect. I do, I do confess that. Now, I wanted to say this again because I am, I am not this harsh realist. The moral gestures of repair that are more promising, I think, and I, I will leave it that. Forgiveness, I, I, I think it, it's a per, can only be a personal choice, and it's obviously very powerful between individuals. And as other people here have said and others have written, I think it's, I guess in religion we call it a grace. I think it is something of a mystery. Who really feels called to, to forgive, and who, calls, who feels called to ask instead for justice, and who may simply be unable to forgive and remain angry. It's, I think it's something of a mystery. But in talk about groups, we're really not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about apology. That's what we're really talking about. And he says, what he even talks about, again, the luxury of little time, I wanted to um, just mention his stages. He calls these the stages of forgiveness. But if you look at them, they're actually put the onus on the harm-doer, and they are closer to apology. Um, wrongdoer's acknowledgment of her deed, her repudiation of it, his or her expression of regret, commitment not to repeat the deed, in some senses that's a commitment to a new moral identity, ability to express sympathy and understanding for the suffering of the victim, and last, this is interesting because I think it's rather unique to Griswold, the wrongdoer's ability to provide a narrative account that is neither fiction nor excuse, and that puts the wrongdoing as well as the self that did the wrong in a context that um, the injured party can, can actually feels that they can understand. Um, so apology, we could say, though it's not clear to me whether it is in fact the obverse or the same as forgiveness. In any case, if apology is weak or insincere, you could still have the onus put on the victim to accept it. But in any case, if an apology is perceived to be sincere, in at least the three um, Abrahamic faiths, I believe the onus then turns to the, the person who is wronged to actually give some, some gesture of acceptance of the apology. Um, some other moral gestures of repair. Truth-telling and acknowledgement, which you see people trying to institutionalize with the truth commissions. A platform for victims to speak out, which was one of the um, innovations of the South African Truth Commission. The earlier commissions had not called on, had not often been public and had not called on victims and given them a platform to speak. Justice, which is not the same as vengeance, in fact, in modern societies. I do think it's actually very far. I think coming from a human rights tradition, I would claim that the interest in justice is in seeing that impunity does not take hold and continue, that there is a message being sent that certain things the moral community will not tolerate. And that doesn't have to be with um, a result that's vengeance. Hopefully it's not a result that includes a death penalty. 
But it seems to me, and this is a very, very common topic in, in the human rights literature, the dangers of impunity are very great when there's no, no method of justice. On the individual level of feeling at peace or letting go. And I would say, in trying to define what I mean by reconciliation, which is very, um, it's also very difficult. I, I will say that Audrey Chapman found that the Truth Commission, people didn't tend to talk about forgiveness, but they didn't talk a lot about reconciliation either, because it's possible, she thought, that the two concepts were actually too abstract for what people were looking for, but they did ask for justice, I'd have to say. She also found that most victims did not actually talk about religion as much as it was very Christian cast to, to the media attention around the, the Truth Commission. She found they didn't try, tend to talk about religion a lot. But I think perhaps the most important thing we're trying to achieve is trust, um, social trust, which actually is a pretty well-established field and has a lot, of, um, a lot of literature that tells you how to try to measure trust in societies. So it seems rather promising, and there was quite a good actual study, big, big, expensive, long-term study of whether or not the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa had been successful in um, raising levels of trust and achieving what people conceived of throughout the country as reconciliation. And he found his findings were cautiously positive, was James Gibson's big study. And there's other studies that are now going on, now that we have enough time from since some of these commissions have been formed and held and completed their work, try to assess did they have any effect and what were they at different levels. So I would say for me, trust is, a, is the most crucial part after violence of a more durable and just peace that's not just the absence of violence. And trust is salient for both the group and the individual. And I would say, too, that when we talk about what we're trying to achieve, you have to look at time. Again, back to the element of time. It just simply may not be in the first generation. I think that's something very important, and I've always tried to define reconciliation as something that happens over generations, and something that's a process and not an end point. Which is, again, why I think forgiveness is very difficult, because after several generations, you don't talk anymore about forgiving um, unless the group is continuing acts of discrimination or violence in many settings where repair is needed, you don't talk about forgiveness anymore because it would actually be an insult to the younger generation who were born and done nothing wrong. Um, but I, I certainly think that the element of time has to be inserted in there, especially when you think that repair in, in many cases may not be achievable, um, but especially for the the first generation, and if they're thinking about perpetrators, it's the, it's the generation, of course, that's, that's still alive. What may be achievable in terms of repair, and I think repair is something that's achievable and that the descendants of both sides can actually take part in, that may have to wait for the second or third generation. And if you look at some of these histories, you do see amazing things happening um, in other generations. Um, or even while the first generation is alive, but the change in a decade can be an enormous difference. I mean, about 10 years ago, surveys and things in Serbia were saying, oh, you know, having the, the, um, the courts, the International Tribunal for War Criminals, the Hague, it's not working. You know, people still hate each other, and the Serbs still feel they were the victims, and they did nothing wrong in Srebrenica. It was an invention. 
this just doesn't work. And no one said what would work. And um, 10 years later, actually, um, you know, there wasn't that much widespread resistance to Karadzic being sent to The Hague. There wasn't, I didn't see, I didn't hear calls from anywhere in the world, let's not have the sense of a moral community that was larger than Serbia and norms, that there was even a sense of relief within Serbia, aside from the we would all be judged for the deeds of certain individuals. And although it's not widely publicized, I haven't gotten to do a lot of research on it yet, one of the biggest nonprofit groups in Serbia is a group of young people who are actually involved in, um, I think it's popular exploration and teaching about the history of the war crimes during the, the um, Yugoslav wars. And it's something I have to start researching for, for work I'm doing. But that was really in the space of a decade. And there's some evidence even that these processes are being started, started speeding up now. That around the world there's more expectations that people will be held accountable. And that history textbooks in schools will not just simply repeat lies. And that marginalized or oppressed minority peoples are not simply going to be left that way, that they're going to be granted some recognition and that their voices are actually going to be heard. The voices of victims are no longer just seen as something that can be um, um, overridden by what used to be called the victors of history. I'm not even sure that that's even a, a term that's correct anymore. So I wanted to end with two quotes. I did want to point out, um, and I think I've been saying this the whole time, um, with Hannah Arendt again, that some crimes are, for many, not even the majority of people, possibly unforgivable in the sense of the past, that, those, that past cannot be redeemed. And moral relationships cannot be restored or established with those most responsible for those crimes. But I think those moral relationships can be established or restored with the communities of those who committed those crimes. I think there's evidence of that. So finally, two quotes, and one is again by Hannah Arendt, and it was a quote of a quote, and actually I don't have a source for, for, for it, so if anyone does know where it's from, it would be very helpful. Um, Amongst men, forgiveness can only mean to give up vengeance, to keep quiet, and do as if nothing happened, which means to walk away by principle, while vengeance will always remain with the other and does not put an end to the relationship. Reconciliation, on the other hand, originates in the acceptance of what befalls us. Whoever reconciles with the other just accepts to carry on his shoulder the burden that anyhow weighs on the other. This means that it reestablishes equality. This is why reconciliation is the exact opposite of forgiveness, which establishes inequality. Typical Hannah Arendt, it's actually very cryptic. So, in, with the understanding that these are very difficult topics to be very concrete about, I put that on the table. And then finally, a quote from a widow who testified before the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and note that she does actually discuss forgiveness. But she says, no government can forgive. No commission can forgive. They don't know my pain. Only I can forgive, and I must know before I can forgive. Thank you very much. She really, uh, I think, broadened our consideration of the, the topic, and um, we really are moving back and forth between perspectives on forgiveness, which accent 
um, the one who does the forgiving and which accent the uh, uh, the victim. And it, it's um, um, for those of you who didn't make the forgiveness and law concurrent session, it's uh, wonderful to have a common session in which um, we look at forgiveness um, with respect to um, uh, well. Apart from interpersonal forgiveness, we have some time for uh, conversation, question and answer. Um, I've actually put some microphones. Uh, there's a mic up there, and I'm going to place this one over here if you don't mind coming up um, to uh, to ask your question. If you're really shy and waiting to me, I'll, I'll bring it back to you. <clears throat> um. Wonderful. Thanks for saying thank you. My question is concerning Darfur. Uh, you didn't mention that at all in your presentation. And albeit this uh, genocide is still ongoing, how do you hope or how do you see that they can reconcile with what is happening and has happened to them? and probably it's going to continue to happen for some time yet. Well, I don't think they can reconcile until the, uh, until the genocide stops. I, I actually, I, I don't have any answer. Um, I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm very discouraged. And um, I'm, um, I really, to me, uh, the actual, I mean, then you get into what can you do to stop a genocide. And it looks to me, and maybe my, I'm, I'm too, too negative about it, but, or too, too pessimistic, but trying to stop a genocide when it's going forward seems to be virtually impossible from the outside. I mean, I just think it's going to happen once in a blue moon that, let's face it, the powerful countries that actually do have the resources and the troops and, frankly, the military experience are going to go in and try to stop. A genocide, especially when it's a huge country like Sudan with, you know, difficult terrain and all those things the military worries about. And, you know, you don't have political will around the world. I mean, I don't have to tell everyone this. You have the problem with the Security Council and you have, frankly, um, you, you have the absolute certainty you're going to have um, a veto from Russia and China. And no, not that the United States has ever has been particularly willing to step in for a genocide. I mean, I, I felt that that's what happened in Kosovo myself. So that was one intervention I was a bit soft on because I felt that I, you know, we'd already seen evidence in Bosnia already and there wasn't really a lot of question about what the Serb forces were really capable of doing. But, and it's, it's, I mean, I think the situation in Sudan is even worse now. The U.S. had a bad experience in Somalia, which is probably the main thing that stopped them from support for the intervention in Rwanda more than racism itself. I think they had already tried to do some kind of intervention in Somalia, went very sour. And now you have eight years of uh, intervention in Iraq that really, really started for the wrong reasons and went really wrong. And um, I certainly don't, and, and frankly, an international financial crisis, and that affects everything. It affects reparations. You know, it affects every single process that we're talking about. I think the only hope is, is very long-term efforts to intervene, to, to have an early warning system, and to try to intervene earlier. Some people say the level of intervention negotiations that went on in Kenya, when there, you had the uh, 
flare-up of electroviolence is probably the right, you were seeing the right signs there. There has been an effort to rethink this philosophically so that you can get around the concerns of all the former colonized countries who think it's, in the end, sovereignty is more important than a government's decision to kill its own people. And that is the philosophy of what's called RGP, I don't know if everyone's followed that, the right to, the responsibility to protect, which is casting the problem rather as um, there is a responsibility to protect, and it starts with the government itself. And if you won't protect your own people, at some point the international community has a responsibility. Not the right to intervene in your country, but the responsibility. And some very, very smart people from very diverse countries have tried to put this forth as a more acceptable um, philosophy, but I, I haven't seen too much evidence that it's, it's holding any better. I mean, I was really looking for it when there was a cyclone in Burma, which wasn't, wasn't a genocide, but in the context of Burma and what has already happened there, under a very, very ruthless dictatorial regime, it was a death sentence for huge numbers of people. And if anything, in a natural disaster, RGP should have somehow made um, more of a, a reaction that you know, caused, or, you know, caused something to happen. And some people are arguing now that in fact, so I think it's a little late, by July, in fact, if you're inside on the ground, there's just been a very good report on this by the um, International Crisis Group, that in fact the government has been responding pretty hard. That they actually, they didn't let American and Indian and so on warships in and helicopters um, but, in fact, they started opening up much more than we heard to aid organizations. And they actually started doing some real relief work themselves, the Burmese government. Which you could claim means that sort of the system actually started to work right. That there was especially intense negotiations by the regional governments. And the first people that the Burmese allowed in were the local Southeast Asian neighbors. They weren't former colonial powers. Um, so that's, that's a possible thing, but when it comes to Darfur, I don't even think, I personally think reconciliation is something that follows in the aftermath of violence. It doesn't even make sense to try to think, we don't even know under what conditions any kind of peace would be achieved there, and that all helps to shape what kind of interventions you would think of and what, what would be possible. Reparations, mm -hmm. which is a study of reparations in about 14 countries. What was answered in South Africa were headstones and school fees. Mm -hmm. Very, very modest reparations. But without those modest reparations, it was impossible to talk about forgiveness. Also, things like safety and the imagination of coexistence of groups. So, in the traditional justice setting, I don't think we can ever talk about state forgiveness until we talk about some form of meaningful reparation. I just wonder if you comment. Uh, and also, I just made, uh, also empirically. I've read over 2,000 statements from the South African Truth Commission. What was most common was a request for reparations over 90%, and there were modest reparations, on average, under $100. So was, even in a traditional democracy that has no funds, maybe something can be given as a good faith effort to start the path to reconciliation. Yeah, oh, I, I agree with you completely, and I, I think I just probably didn't um, go into reparations as one of the um, gestures of repair enough. The reparations, restitution, um, yeah, and even economic and social development, because it's been said that actually, someone just told me this, I didn't realize this, that there were 92 deaths in custody in the whole of apartheid, which I find hard to believe that this was someone very 
very knowledgeable who worked on the Truth Commission, which you know you don't want to say only 92, but in fact deaths in custody were not then the major. It was the major, really high-level um, atrocity of apartheid was the complete impoverishment and dispossession of the majority of the population there, with all the different um, effects that that had, including people being um, pushed into violence, um, everyday kind of violence, the criminalization of violence, the politicization of criminal violence and the criminalization of political violence, which is exactly where reparations, including things like land reform, which are I think, probably going to be totally necessary if the country is actually to succeed without falling into major violence, I think they're very important. And um, unfortunately, it's been pretty problematic. I mean, I think that the reparations have been very limited that were paid in South Africa. I think some of them paid, but much of that was promised hasn't been paid. And yeah, that seems that seems very very tragic. But I don't I don't know if that necessarily has to precede the gestures that come from the state. And actually, reparations is often decided um, at the state level as a policy at the state level. And um, Pablo de Grave actually is at a place in New York called the International Center for Transitional Justice, which does consulting all around the world now, started by people who are all connected really with the South African Truth Commission. But they have programs all around the world trying to consult um, the best kind of mechanisms to have. But he's a wonderful philosopher from Colombia. And I do have to say, I read recently a piece he wrote on reconciliation that was very, very good. And he said, forget forgiveness, that, that's not even Actually, you dismissed it pretty quickly. That's not really a part of what we're talking about here. I like him because he really focused also on trust as well. But I completely agree with your point. I, I found your distinction uh, between the role of the individuals and individuals to be very helpful. And I have a question, and I don't know if you consider uh, within your domain or domain of the Peace Institute National. Um, issues, but one uh, that comes, or that I have become recently interested in, would be interested in your perspective on, um, is in with the African American community in this country, and because of some work that I've begun doing in the last couple of years, it's become an interest of mine. It's not an area where I have um, any sort of expertise, but recently, and I found it to be quite excellent. And in that, she talks about the role of child slavery, transatlantic travel, child slavery in uh, African American history. And I'm wondering if you might comment on that in relationship to what you are distinguishing between forgiveness and some other sort of truth and uh, reconciliation for um, African Americans in this country today. Well, a couple of things. I actually should have said, and it's a good thing, I think I put it in my abstract because I'm, I'm professionally remiss. When I, before I start speaking, I'm supposed to say, the opinions I express are my own and not those of the U.S. Institute of Peace, which does not espouse any policy positions. Um, so no, we, we actually don't take policy positions per se. And also the U.S. Institute of Peace um, by the, our mandate, we're not allowed to take up any cases of conflict within the U.S. We're only focused on internationally, but we do support a lot of work here if it's education doesn't allow us to take it up. But as far as, I mean, actually, you know, when I was talking about people 
planning intervention in distant places, obviously there's virtually no country that doesn't have some cases here at home, and those wouldn't be distant cases. And obviously here, that's one of, one of the most important and unaddressed ones. And you know, there's, there's so much writing and discussion on it. I'm not, I'm not really an expert. I have to say, um, I'll just say just sort of a couple of random things. I've been impressed very recently by a couple of, by a number of local initiatives. I, I, I have a hard time at this point anymore imagining any really grand gestures from the state. I mean, Bill Clinton made his apology. Um, but I think it's clear that the kind of what should have happened, you know, and the promise of repair was caught in the expression, Six, 60 acres and a mule, that was after the Civil War and was, you know, the most tragically missed minute. What was conceived of as reconciliation came to be between white and white Southern efforts by African Americans at that time during the period after the war to get their, their voices, um, their views known and to reach out and they were you know, completely ignored. There was even the effort early on to talk about a national holiday that would be, that could celebrate the emancipation of the Juneteenth. And it's insane that it never became reality. I mean, of all the important days to celebrate, I mean, I actually think it's, it's amazing. But uh, you have this problem of time with certain forms of repair. And, you know, I, I do think it's a real problem. We, you haven't had any of these truth commissions that were really generations after the original events. For slavery, I don't think a truth commission, it's just way too far away from anyone who even remembers directly a relative who would have experienced slavery. You know, there, there, what there could have been, possibly still could be, would be um, more um, um, fora around the Jim Crow era of violence. And there were, I mean, there were, there were flawed trials, and some of those cases had come back to trial, which I think is fantastic, and even if the people are damn old, they should damn old try, if they carried out those terrible crimes during, during the, um, the civil rights movement. But I've been struck recently by a number of local initiatives, and it seems to me that's where the hope is. Like, it, the um, activities at Old Miss are really interesting, because that, as I understand it, is where the country came very close to another civil war, you know, during the, um, the integration of the university, and whether or not the troops were going to stay loyal in seeing that that university was integrated. And Mississippi was, of course, really the heart of period of interesting events and sort of interviews with people in the paper, and I'd like to see actually more writing about it. There's also been, um, I'm curious to know how many people here know um, either the names of Rosewood or Tulsa or something special. I, I didn't know about this until I started reading. It was really shocking. It was like reading about the pogroms against Jews back in old Europe. And um, yeah, there's virtually no one knows anything about them. It's really shocking. There's been some very interesting writing about Tulsa, um, which really, I mean, it was a whole actually thriving middle class community that was utterly destroyed. And there's evidence, you know, set off by the usual rumor that, you know, some African American man offended in a, a white woman's honor somewhere. And there's even evidence, I think, that the National Guard used helicopters and dropped bombs. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there was obvious need for a historical commission. And there was one in the 90s, and John Pope Franklin took part in it, and they strongly recommended reparations, because that had taken place in the 20s. 
And there were still people alive who had lost everything. I mean, they really had a thriving community that, you know, was people lost businesses, homes, nothing. It was ever, ever, um, there, was, there was no repair whatsoever. So they strongly, the committee strongly recommended, they did very interesting work on what, what, what can be known about the events, what we don't yet know, what will probably never be known, and they made recommendations for reparations, which were roundly ignored. But just lately, the town has actually started raising the money for, I guess it's a park, a memorial park, and a bench, and it's, a, it's, it's named for John Hope Franklin, who's one of the most important um, you know, African-American historians in the country. And there's also an effort to raise funds for reparations for the surviving victims privately because the state will not do it. Now, whether or not that has, whether or not the state will come around, I don't know, and whether or not that would have the force of meaning that it would if it came from the state, I don't know, but um, I, I really think that slavery took place locally, as did do many, many of these crimes and injustices, and maybe the greatest hope is, there was also a truth commission in North Carolina, by the way, about um, a massacre in Greensboro, which was slated to like, I think, 79 or 80s, which I don't know how successful it was, because I'm not sure many of, it sounded to me like many of the white citizens in North Carolina were really not listening. Um, but it, that was the first tr truth commission that we've had here. So, but I do think it's open. What she, um, uh, what inspired her book, and actually she's a clinical social worker, and inspired her, um, now her career direction, was a visit to South Africa, and it led her to wonder about the difference in the um, South Africans and American um, black uh, population, as far as there was an optimism, uh, just entirely different. Um, she was quite struck by it, and it led her to wonder about why, and she wondered how much uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Act, at least acknowledging the crime, may have had to do with it. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I think there's no doubt that you have to remember that the black population in South Africa is the majority population. So they, they're they now running the government. They, you know, and that makes, whether you're a majority population, who was unjustly treated, which is less common, or whether it's a minority, there's a real difference in how much power people end up with. I also don't know if that optimism has this proven very long, long-lasting, as everyone knows from the recent violence, and the economy is not coming through with the hopes of the poorest South Africans at all. So I don't know. I think I have read very qualified assessments of what the Truth Commission really achieved for people. I think it's going to take more years to see if it really had that effect. And it's also very difficult to separate from other effects. Like even if they, if the Truth Commission had been a wild success, the fact that Zimbabwe is falling apart and you have big flows of refugees coming in who are taking, seen as taking jobs from very, very poor, precarious people, you know, that could still have set off a chain of violence there. And then again, the world economy is not going to do anything good for anywhere in that part of the world and for efforts to achieve more economic justice and build an economy that reaches the poorest people. So I don't know, I, do, I will say one last thing. Um, I was interested in her title, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. I did want to say that I, had a very, I interviewed a very interesting woman in Cleveland while I was working on, my, um, on, the, on the project in history and the politics of reconciliation. She's become sort of a local hero for doing these walks in the steps of slaves who fled north 
on the Underground Railroad. Um, she's a local African-American woman in Cleveland, and she's um, since started a, a kind of small foundation, an educational foundation. I think she'd actually been a teacher, and she, she was great. She was really active in Cleveland and took school children on these walks. And when I interviewed her, she said something very interesting to what she thought reconciliation would be. She said, you know, I used to cringe when I was a girl and I was in school and people would bring up slavery. She said, frankly, you know, being remembered as people who came in chains and were essentially victims, you know, was, was actually quite humiliating. She said, what I would really like to see is for African-Americans' contribution to this country to be acknowledged. And people, you know, unpaid and then un, really unheralded took great part in building up the country, building up, I think, what some people have tried to estimate is a very large amount of the wealth of the country. And this feeling that, well, you know, the important part of the history was that they were enslaved and they were sort of, I don't know what, doing what on the plantations, rather than these people's labor helped to build the country as well as many other contributions. That was what she thought. She's was also about the resilience and the importance of claiming that they contributed. And what she actually looks at are the transgenerational effects of the trauma um, as they come into focus today and focuses on healing um, as a people. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I need to draw this session to, um, to a close because we've got to get some um, videos set up for, uh, for our next session. But please join me in thanking uh, Dr. Lillian She received her PhD in Christian Ethics from Boston College in 2005. She's one of a group of exciting younger theologians who've been um, revivifying Catholic theology by exploring the intersection of Christianity and contemporary culture while insisting on the need for a strong ecclesial identity. Her own recent work has been some of the most exciting of this, of this work, focusing on, in her words, art and its role in building the city of God. That is how Christian belief, beauty, and a passion for justice all together reveal the gracious and active presence of God in our midst, transforming social realities and renewing the world. Professor O'Connell has deep roots in our area. She received her BA from St. Joe's University, and for a while she was a member of Villanova's master's program in theology before BC lured her away. Uh, Maureen, everything's forgiven. Um, she's the author of many essays on Christian ethics, theological aesthetics, and political theology. And this year, she's been the recipient of a Christian Faith and Life Grant from the Louisville Institute, a Lilly Endowment-funded program that supports those who lead and study American religious institutions. The grant is a renewal. Her topic this afternoon is the art of forgiveness, theological aesthetics in the context of urban violence. Would you please join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Dr. Maureen O'Connell. Well, I must say, I have a, a, a steep road ahead of me. I have to follow Jane Golden and her eloquence, and I have to talk about theology after 5 o'clock on a rainy Tuesday afternoon. Um, but I think if anything can make theology exciting, it's the art um, that you've seen already um, throughout the city of Philadelphia. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that in the context of forgiveness. And I know we've had a lot to say already today about forgiveness and um, at the threat of muddying the waters further, I want to offer a definition which I think I'm going to use throughout uh, the comments I want to make this afternoon. And they're offered by a liberation theologian, Roberto Gosueta, from uh, Boston College. 
who defines forgiveness as the willingness to, excuse me, the willingness to risk a new relationship. Again, he says, forgiveness is a willingness to risk a new relationship. Kevin Johnson took this kind of risk when rather than perpetrate or perpetuate, excuse me, perpetuate the cycle of violence that has made Philadelphia the most violent city in the country, he publicly forgave the peers who shot him for his Allen Iverson jersey in 2003, a wound that rendered him a quadriplegic and eventually claimed his life. Kevin's mother, Janice Jackson Burke, risked this kind of relationship when, rather than be physically and emotionally consumed by her grief and her anger, she agreed to meet with Kevin's assailants, other adjudicated youth and men incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution at Greaterford, in order to create a wall-sized memorial to Kevin and his commitment to forgiveness. Michael Whittington, who's pictured there behind Janice, one of Kevin's assailants, risked his own kind of new relationship when, rather than make little personal investment in his own rehabilitation, he decided to participate in a mural making project while he was incarcerated, something he continues to do since serving his <coughs> sentence. Inmates at Greaterford Prison, juvenile delinquents at St. Gabriel's Hall, and women of Erie House, a residential facility for ex-offenders on, on which the mural was installed, also took a similar risk in creating a new relationship when they believe that art can make a change in their lives and in the lives of the communities they have somehow damaged. Muralist Eric Oakday risked a new relationship when, rather than take control of the creative process as the lead muralist on this project, he listened deeply to the conversations of teens and inmates and Janice and then struggled to capture the essence of their emotions and visions, emotions and visions were, that were not his own in this giant image. And neighbors at 13th and Erie risked this new kind of relationship when rather than refusing to see the connection between Kevin's situation and crime in their own neighborhood, they made their own contributions to the mural and welcomed its message in their community. So certainly as we've been discussing today, Forgiveness is a touchstone of the Judeo-Christian understandings of who in a hyper-individualized culture such as ours, forgiveness too easily becomes a private exchange or experience between individuals, or a strictly vertical relationship between an individual and the God of their understanding, or something that we associate with individual acts of wrongdoing, or a therapeutic catharsis we seek either in the seclusion of the confessional or in staged uh, acts of public rhetoric. We are less likely to think about forgiveness in more relational, horizontal, social, or political terms, whether as a collective commitment to a certain way of being in the world, as a political process of seeking repentance for social sin, or in the case of those connected to the forgiveness project, as the courage to risk a new way of being in relationship with others that can begin to heal a city wounded by violence. So this community mural and the several others like it among the more than 2,800 that adorn Philadelphia are definitely teaching us something about <coughs> forgiveness. They offer colorful, arresting, and larger-than-life insights that correct the dangerous tendency towards private, vertical, contractual, or even confessional approaches to forgiveness. The deeply relational process of mural making probes and then privilege, privileges 
the memories, stories, perspectives, and dreams of the most marginalized Philadelphians. Neighbors living in tracks of concentrated poverty, truant students, delinquent youth, incarcerated felons, ex-offenders. All of these people expose, make meaning of, and heal experiences of pain, alienation, and suffering in the process of this art. The murals create, therefore, a common beauty that renews our collective commitment to the common good, which is the ideal solution to structural violence of poverty. So therefore, the process of making the community murals and the resulting images they present, I think, give us three theological insights into forgiveness that can deepen our notion of this idea in the Christian tradition. So I want to say a couple things about each and use the murals as um, the ideal way to demonstrate this. So first, I want to suggest that community murals are imaginative. The murals prophetically illustrate forgiveness in a way that's quite imaginative and much like the way that Christ used parables in the New Testament. He invited people to think imaginatively, radically new thoughts, and experience new feelings about how God and how God's kingdom might look, sound, feel, smell, taste. So like the parables, murals use everyday symbols, images, events, experiences, in order to spark, to spark our imaginations and invite us to actively ponder things bigger than ourselves to experience ordinary things in extraordinary ways, and to actively participate in the worlds that these murals project. So for example, children's faces, and I'm sorry I didn't do these quickly, city skylines, flowers and birds, cultural landmarks, historical icons, and personalities from the neighborhood humanize the entrenched social problems that we face in our city. They reveal to us the creative power of the human spirit. They awaken in us a sense that we can indeed work together to bring about social change. And perhaps most importantly, they impart an experiential wisdom that we need to tackle insurmountable problems. So in murals such as forgiveness, we certainly encounter a sense, an empowering grace of God. And Jane, at the end of her, of her comments, I mentioned this notion of grace. The grace of a God who is active in communities that the, the wider culture has dismissed. And because of that, they stimulate our imaginations. Particularly, and I want to say this very intentionally, particularly the Catholic suburban imagination. They remind us, in the words of artist and activist Maxine Green, that the role of the imagination is not to resolve, not to point, point the way, not to improve, but rather to awaken and to, dis to disclose the ordinarily unseen, hidden, unheard, and unexpected. So because the murals are painted by communities and persons on the margins, they incorporate perspectives and visions of people who see and imagine the world quite differently than we do. And through their artistic self-expression, self they non-verbally propose provocative symbols of God for the good life, for what it means to be human. So for example, we experience overlooked attributes of the divine in many of the, in many of the murals. For example, in Cliff Eubanks' Born Again, which juxtaposes the experiences of the Holy Family with those of families in one Southwest Philadelphia neighborhood, we encounter a God who identifies with parents who try to raise their children in the midst of real threats of violence, or with mothers who have sons wrongly accused and executed by the state, 
or with neighbors who long to be liberated from the oppressive weight of poverty. In Barbara Smolin's Families Are Victims Too, which has a contemporary pieta in my, in my estimation, we encounter a God who intimately knows the grief and the anguish of families reeling in the aftermath of the murder of a child, or a God who resolutely believes that life can indeed go on after such a tragic event. Or we discover that being, being part of being human entails making ourselves vulnerable in others' suffering but also embracing our capabilities for moral agency. And I feel that that is an, a message that's caught, captured very clearly in this uh, mural titled Bridge, Addressing Issues of Race. So we, and, and we also discover that the good life has to incorporate beauty, and that's evidenced by many dramatic landscapes that overpower the blight in many neighborhoods. So, what does this notion of the, the imagination bring to forgiveness? This emphasis on the imagination and social change helps first us recognize that murals in the world's largest outdoor gallery cannot be separated from their particular social context in the nation's most violent city. We can't separate those two, those two points. Therefore, this art not only calls our attention to situations of personal sin or moral failing, but it also raises awareness of the equally complex and morally significant structural or social sin of concentrated poverty. For example, when we stand before the murals, we begin to see, and in fact to feel, the causal connection between white flight and hypersegregation, between underdeveloped and overdeveloped schools, between the addictions of consumerism and rampant substance abuse, between the cultural defense of the Second Amendment and the homicide rate, between social stereotypes of young black men and skyrocketing incarceration rates. This public art makes it possible for us to acknowledge and to take responsibility for our complicity in the structural violence of poverty by inviting us to imagine with another's mind. When people shift their perspectives so that they finally understand someone's reality, Jane Golden said recently in an op-ed in the Inquirer, the work of muralism moves from arduous to inspiring, and those profound moments of change are really the essence of what we do. In addition, the imaginative energy of the murals reveals that forgiveness is not an intellectual contract between consenting parties, but an emotional, embodied, colorful, tactile, sensory process of creation that continues to unfold. Therefore, it's not simply about the head, but it also involves the heart. The integration of the head and heart is obvious if we consider that perhaps the central question the murals pose to us is not what you think about this image, but how does this image make you feel? My second point, creating the common beauty. I think that murals, like this one entitled Restoration that Jane just spoke of, painted by truant students, adjudicated youth, incarcerated prisons, persons rather, victims of crime and their advocates, literally illustrate the concrete and tactile relationship between beauty and justice, which are two rather abstract concepts, at least in Christian theology. But scholars in the field of aesthetics agree that beauty at its, at its very basic is life-saving. So Elaine Scarry, a very prominent philosopher, says that beautiful things instill within us an aliveness or an alertness that inspires a desire within us to protect beautiful things. In other words, beauty invites us to become stewards and caretakers of the sense of aliveness or alertness within ourselves. 
it calls forth a sense of responsibility. And so we see evidence of this responsibility in young people who resist the urge to tag or to face the murals or who are attuned to the beauty of themselves or others and therefore resist the urge to react to one another with violence. And Susan Ross, another, another ethicist, adds that beauty is not something we possess, but rather something that we do. And I think this is also evident in the neighbors' decisions to plant gardens or clean streets or call about potholes. Um, beauty simply begets more beauty. The interesting thing that links beauty and justice is the notion of relationship. Relationality or the capability to be affiliated deeply with yourself and people and things beyond yourself lie at the heart of beauty's life-saving qualities and also is the central character of justice as we come to understand it in, in the Bible. So whether in accounts of the relationship between Yahweh and the people of Israel or in the narratives of Christ's ministry among the Jews of Palestine, we learn that justice quite simply means living in right relationship with yourself, with others, and with God. Justice stems from the recognition of the sacred beauty of the other. Respect for the restless creative power that resides in each of us that you can scratch just below the surface and encounter, as Jane mentioned, and in a belief of a God who desires relationship with us in a boundless and overflowing way. And I think the sense of the rightness of relationships of justice is captured in this mural, Peaceable Kingdom, which juxtaposes images of biblical justice with justice in the neighborhood or justice in the community, and then another mural entitled Unity. Um, in, in uh, southwest Philadelphia that brought together Liberian immigrants and African Americans who are already calling that community home. So in other words, beauty cultivates a sense of right relationship. Sister Margaret McKenna of New Jerusalem Now, an intentional faith community in North Philadelphia that accompanies neighbors on a long journey from addiction to recovery, notes that beauty awakens us to our joys joys that are often best experienced in the context of healthy relationships. She says, when things are right, they are beautiful. Therefore, recovery is about getting it right and then having a beautiful life. It's not just not about doing wrong, but finding the joys that give you even better highs. And so therefore, justice at its best is not a mathematical calculus that determine where we determine what we owe other people, but it's really about the desire to be in relationships with other people where we figure out what is ours to do and then get high on actually doing those things together, enjoy the highs of doing those things together. And so a mural that this community did, the New Jerusalem Now community, really captures this. So mural making captures a, deep, a sense of deep and authentic relationality within and among people with, of different histories and stories. In addition, it awakens people to their own joys, to their sense of self to the sense of the connection they have to others, to a sense of connection that they have to their environments. And this can provide a very important social glue, a social glue that can repair lives and communities damaged by trauma, by violence, by addiction. And so the various images of recovery that this community worked together to try to capture on their wall really expresses the inner joys and beauties of this community. Second, and this is, a, this is a mural that's done on one of the police precincts. I'm sorry, I don't know the title. And, um, but it's, I, I went down and visited, so it's, it's on. It's, it was done by um, police officers and kids by Cesar Viveros on, on one of the police precincts. This beauty is making the, the, the murals are making the life-saving attributes 
of beauty available to people who are otherwise denied beauty, whether it's because they live in pockets of concentrated poverty or they attend schools where art has been cut from the curriculum, or because they've been incarcerated in a prison system that makes little effort to rehabilitate them. But beauty serves justice by cultivating a desire to participate in your immediate environment, a desire to have sensitivity to your own beauty and dignity and that of others. And so Jane has said in another context, when you introduce beauty, it makes people feel that they have a voice, that they can be part of a system of change, that there's potential and that redemption is possible. So a really great and very profound example of that for me in my own research, um, I had the opportunity to join some folks from Mural Arts at a meeting at Greaterford Prison to talk about a mural that they're working on currently. Um, and Greaterford Prison, shown here in this photo that was taken by Harvey Finkel, a really um, well-renowned photojournalist here in Philadelphia. Uh, the prisoners there identify themselves as being connected to the mural arts program. They don't identify by their crime, by how long, the, what their sentence is, how long they've been serving. They identify as being muralists with mural arts. And it allows these men to contribute to communities they will most likely never return to. It instills a sense of pride and self-worth. Um, for example, one of the greater for muralists named Charlie, he said in this conversation, you know, I've got grandchildren who are on the outside and I want them to pass a building and say my grandfather was part of that. That's a very powerful experience of the connection between beauty and justice. So in other words, beauty helps us, make, helps us understand that justice is not an intellectual con uh, construct, but really a way of being. And the common beauty that the murals create remind us that the common good, therefore, isn't something that we think about, but actually something that we draft, that we dream, that we construct, that we hone in collaborations with others in the context of a deep um, and inherent notion of the beauties of persons. So this brings important ideas to the notion of forgiveness. I'm gonna be really quick. Um, first of all, the, the murals bring a nonverbal approach to forgiveness, which I think is really quite significant. And Brother Brian Henderson at St. Gabe's Hall really captured this very well. He said, in our word-oriented culture, some of the visual and feeling and tactile aspects of our humanity get repressed. But this, and that blinds us, he says, to some of the richness of our humanity, but he suggests that this art is a powerful tool for people who have emotionally died to put the death of life into a perspective that they can feel when they see it. And then, he says, you can have a conversation that is healing and positive rather than destructive and violent. So the murals give us a nonverbal way of engaging in forgiveness. Second, mural making in detention centers and, and jails and prisons involves months of conversation and reflection before anybody even picks up a brush. And so this reminds us that authentic forgiveness begins with difficult, messy, unpredictable processes of reestablishing a relationship with yourself with others, with God. And this is not easy, but in fact becomes really the most central component of forgiveness. So for example, Cesar Viveros, one of the first muralists to work um, on the healing walls, and Jane mentioned them, said to me in a conversation I had to him, like coming to mass or going to a block party, the more you connect with others, the less you are willing to hurt another person. And so he suggests that in many ways, the, be the beauty of the murals is that it brings people together and then actually might contribute to the incidents of crime that we don't hear about or the violence that is avoided because people have come to know one another. Okay, my last and final point, seeing the bigger picture, forgiveness that interrupts um, retributive justice. The mural arts program um, 
in the area of restorative justice provides a really important creative alternative to the reward and punishment model that dictates the legal and criminal justice systems in this country. Scholars increasingly agree that the retributive approach only perpetuates the logic of violence at the heart of crime, does little to effectively rehabilitate prisoners, and actually fuels the voracious American prison industrial complex. So for example, according to one study by the Pew Center on the States released in February of this year, there are 1.6 million Americans incarcerated in state and federal prisons, and more than 750,000 more held in local jails. This means that one in 100 Americans in this country is incarcerated. And a staggering one out of 15 African Americans and one in nine African American men are behind bars. That's a much larger population than what's incarcerated in, it's a, a population that exceeds the incarceration rate in China that has three times our population. According to the National Institute of Corrections, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Department of Corrections manages, and that's the word they use, manages nearly 44,000 inmates in 26 prisons and 14 community facilities. Philadelphians constitute 70% of that population. In fact, the Justice Policy Institute reported in April of 2008 that Philadelphia has the highest incarceration rate of any county in the country. On any given day in Philadelphia in 2006, there were 8,725 people held in jail. And also, one-fifth of all juveniles who have been tried as adults in this country are also Philadelphians. Christian ethicist James Logan suggests that criminal justice, our criminal justice system operates with a retributive degradation model, which he describes as the punitive practice of authorized social vengeance and status humiliation carried out by those convicted of crime in such a way that reproduces criminality. So in other words, the prison system reproduces a criminal um, mind and criminal behavior. Community and your rehabilitate individuals and communities devastated by crime. This art embodies the definition of what uh, Mennonite theologian Howard Zur calls a distinction between a retributive justice approach and a restorative justice approach. Um, for example, in the process of bringing together different members of the community to the table, as was uh, this picture captures from this meeting last month, community murals remind prisoners and adjudicated youth that they are not accountable to the anonymous state, but to actual people and communities where they committed their crimes. The process of mural making also breaks through the power that crime holds over perpetrators and victims. By cultivating a sense of self-reflection and mediative thinking, mural making helps young people to find meaning in their past actions, to rise above the centrifugal force and logic of the streets, and to think intentionally about future actions. They also assist victims and advocates in similar ways, helping them to make meaning of crime, to non-verbally wrestle with feelings of anger and fear, and to more fully integrate the crime into their biography. Um, and again, rather than individualize the reality of crime, the murals call our attention to the bigger picture in which crime takes place in this city. Families traumatized by concentrated poverty, underdeveloped schools, a prison system that does little to rehabilitate offenders, and a lack of community support and viable options for people who return. So in this way, mural making encourages the community to begin to take responsibility for crime, rather than leaving it in the hands of professionals. And I think that was something that was very evident in Jane's comments. So two concluding points about what this brings in terms of forgiveness to thinking about restorative justice. 
First, in this art, we discover that forgiveness is essential for personal moral development and therefore the rehabilitation of all individuals who are connected to crime. So this mural, My Life, My Destiny, helps us understand that mural making can shape the character or moral fingerprint of people who are involved in the process or in the incidences of crime by helping them to be reflective, to enter into intentional relationships, and to envision who it is they want to become. Uh, Angela, Angela Crafton, a really neat woman who I've had a wonderful opportunity to get to know, a muralist herself who discovered recovery through art while in a Philadelphia County jail, currently teaches muralism to incarcerated persons and adjudicated youth, helping them create beauty for their facilities and for their communities. And she says not only does her work as an artist keep in prisons, keep her out of prison, but she notices that it has a similar positive impact on some of her young students. I tell my students, for two hours, you are not an inmate, you are an artist. You can't mess up, everything you do is right. And so I wanna suggest that this begins to create a distinction that's important in Catholic moral theology between attending to the superego and responding to the invitation of conscience. She's really helping those students um, articulate a sense of who it is that they wanna be. Um, community murals and the process that creates them also refuses to separate the individual crime from the larger context of broken communities. Therefore, restorative justice also requires a collective commitment on our part to forgiveness that focuses on repairing broken relationships at the social level. Mural making enables this process by helping us see this larger picture. So for example, the three sets of outward gazing eyes in all joined hands on Benjamin Franklin High School non-verbally and piercingly inquire passers-by what we are doing to curb youth violence in the city. Poetry written on that by students and then stenciled throughout this massive mural calls our attention to the fact that young people are the products of their families, of their neighborhoods, and of our collectively held social values. I'm from you, can't you see? One of the poems provocatively asks. So these, justice, these murals proclaim that rehabilitation of people affected by violence depends as much on the commitment of the wider society to creating safe communities with economic, educational, and vocational opportunities as it does on incarcerated individuals. And then finally, and this will be my last point, um, the men at Greaterford have really, I think, hit on something that's quite important, and this is something that the murals bring. Community murals are changing the perceptions of people on the outside of prison, and I, on, on the outside of prison walls, and so I, I am one of those people, I'm captured in this photo, as one of the most profound experiences I have had um, to date in my, in my young life. Um, but prisoners at Greaterford are increasingly recognizing the power of their art to change public con consciousness about incarceration, um, criminal justice and ex-offenders. So another greater for muralist I had the opportunity to meet, a guy named Safir, noted that while they might not be visible members or active members of society, he said, we're having our voices heard through our art. And one of his fellow artists agreed, rhetorically asking, how do we change attitudes? We keep painting. We just keep painting. So since community murals are done by people who are largely ignored by the wider society, the experiential wisdom that they surface in their personal reflections and group interactions and then the breathtaking images they create can become theological texts for Christian communities attempting to understand and practice forgiveness in Philadelphia. 
And Jane said recently at a uh, dedication, if we think about restorative justice, it's about forgiveness and about restoring self, community, and soul. And art can do this. Art projects new worlds for us to explore. And after we've been in those worlds, we don't ever really inhabit the real world in quite the same way. And in having made a pilgrimage and continuing to make a pilgrimage throughout neighborhoods in this city in search of this art and the new worlds they open to me, I have learned from my scholarship and discipleship, my Christian discipleship, a very important principle, guiding principles. The murals underscore the importance of not only seeking a faith that does justice, but also a faith that imagines forgiveness. Imagining forgiveness um, as those who create murals do, because this is a powerful way to participate in God's ongoing creation and redemption in the city. Thank you.